This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I introduce my guest, a quick reminder that the Crime Cafe nine book set and Crime Cafe short story anthology are available for sale at all major online retailers and some minor ones too. Uh, in any event, just go to my website, debbiemack.com, and uh, click on Crime Cafe, where you'll find the buy links as well as ways to subscribe to the podcast. And with that said, I'm thrilled to have on my program today one of my old writers group buddies and a great mystery author, as well as a master thespian, <laughs> Ray Flint. Hi, Ray. I'm I'm very glad to have you on today. It's it's awesome, and thanks for being here. Well, it's great to be with you, and uh, we do have a history, even though you're barely out of college, and I'm 39 again. Oh, you know, please. we do go back a, a few years, <laughs> and uh, I, I have fond memories of that writers group in Maryland for for many many years. Uh, we miss you. It really kind of crystallized my writing. That group. It's a great group, and I'm glad to be a part of it. And um, we miss we miss you and uh, think of you often, and uh, at least I do. And um, your first mystery, I remember reading parts of that. I believe absolutely. Um, Unforgiving shadows. Unforgiving shadows. Yes, it seems to set that? up. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of seems to set up Brad Frame's backstory for kind of like the whole series that kind of carries him through the whole series in a sense. Was that intentional? Uh, yes. Although it was not the first Brad Frame story that I wrote. Ah, okay. First one that I wrote um, was entitled Grateful Husband, Loving Wife. And it was, it was not good. <laughs> <laughs> Plain and simple. However, I thought when I finished it, it was a masterpiece, you know. First of all, it was only about 40,000 words. It was not, I mean, some might debate whether I'm a good writer now, but I was not a good writer back then. And I rediscovered my manuscript for that book about 10 years after I'd written it. And I started to read. I thought, oh, my God, this is just absolutely awful. <laughs> so I know I've I know I've improved from then. So that was the first book, and I, I it really was I think unconnected character that I wanted to make Brad. And uh, one of the one of the issues that my life that that I wanted to infuse Brad Frame with was to create a gator whose life had been informed by tragedy and that kind of shot him off into a different trajectory than, than he had been. Now, in my own life, uh, when I was in my mid-30s, I had a younger brother, age 22, and it was, a, you know, it was certainly a tragic event for our family. It was something that we were all dealing with, trying to come to grips with. Uh, did a lot of reading about, etc. Second book that I wrote in the uh, uh, with Brad Frame as the lead character was a book that later got published called Lady on the Edge, and in that book, 
it features a South Carolina ceramic artist who whose son had whose son's death had been ruled a suicide four years earlier. Out that Brad Frame was in town and reached out to him saying she didn't believe that her son would commit suicide. Mystery writer, it has to be a murder mystery and you know, and in fact involved. But that book gave me the opportunity to explore suicide on families. Mm -hmm. So that was basically the second manuscript that I wrote, a book uh, which is originally titled Death Scenes. Um, And that is what became Unforgiving Shadows. Indulge me a little of the story because I think this is informative uh, for writers. Some of my favorite authors growing up were like Rex Stout. So he had uh, he had the Watson character that basically told his stories, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I originally I started off with the idea that Brad Frame, this wealthy main line of Philadelphia had hired a publicist to tell his stories. And that character's name was Steve McBride. And and Steve was young, a whole lot younger than Brad. He was an unemployed actor, which, of course, was something that I could identify with. He also had a very flip sense of humor. And he was poor, whereas Brad was rich, and it gave – it gave time for commentary about wealthy and, you know, how easy their life was and so on. So I wrote this whole story called Death Scenes with Steve McBride as the first person narrator of the story. I ended up getting an agent who told me, quote, unquote, I love the book. Okay, great. I'm glad you, I'm glad you love the book. Well, she spent a little over a year trying to interest publishers in New York in buying the book. And after I think it was 15 months or whatever, she came back to me and she said, Ray, I I just I've exhausted most of the publishers. She said, maybe you need to go back and do what a couple of the editors had suggested. And that is that they felt Brad Frame was too distant because I was using this other narrator. So maybe you need to go back and revise your book, third-person Brad Frame's viewpoint. Hmm. And I did. <laughs> and that <laughs> took seven months. I mean, you don't just right. change first person to third person overnight, you know. Plus, I at that point, I didn't need Steve anymore, so I eliminated his character. But the, but the story of Unforgiving Shadows was essentially the same one as – death scenes, except now told in Brad, per- Brad Frame's third-person viewpoint. And that's the book that eventually was published by Five Star and Five. Mm-hmm. Thus, my first published book in the Brad Frame series. So then I, had, then I had Lady on the Edge fully completed, and guess, guess who, the, who was, the narrator was for that? Steve McBride. And I had two thirds of another book called Transplanted Death, the narrator of which was Steve McBride. So I had I had one and two thirds books that I then 
had to go back and completely rewrite to to put it in Brad Frame's third person. Wow. So that's you know that that that's, was my start as a as a writer. As a writer and a rewriter. Writer and a rewriter, and as you know, writing is all about rewriting. Exactly, editing. it is very so, much so. That's how I got my start, and that you know. But but so to, back to your earlier question, those uh, I envision Brad a, a, a dozen years after the death of his parents or his mother and sister. Excuse me, they were kidnapped and murdered, and He's invited in the first chapter, he's invited to the execution by lethal injection of one of two men responsible murder. One had died in prison. So there's just this this uh, who's awaiting execution. Brad goes reluctantly. Uh, he doesn't necessarily feel that, that that's going to give him any closure. The execution. And after everything is over, the chaplain runs after him and shoves a Bible into his hand and said, the condemned man wanted you to have this. Not to give away the whole story, but within the Bible is a message man that sends Brad back to the original case. So not only does, does the, the story gives that opportunity to go back and examine what propelled Brad into becoming a private investigator because prior to that he had led a rather aimless life. He, like I say, he came from a wealthy family. He had family trust funds. He traveled a lot and didn't do very much of anything. And the, the tragedy in his family gave him a focus and, and he decided to become a private investigator to help bring justice to other people. Hmm. That's kind of the premise that I've been working, working off of. That's interesting. Uh, as the series has progressed, I've noticed that the, the stories seem to get darker. A, a little where bit. He, where he's butting more heads more with the police. Yes, well, that happens. That does happen. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges of writing a private investigator is there are limitations to what they can do. And I think your, your average private investigator is mostly helping to either track down missing persons or um, fidelity in a marriage situation. They've been hired, you know, for, for that purpose, et cetera. Uh, they don't get very much involved in solving murders. Usually the police are the ones that get involved in solving murders. And so when I have a murder take place, and all, all of my books involve murders, I have, I feel as if I have to have a legitimate reason for why Brad is interested in the case, his nose around in the case. And inevitably in, in some of the books, it has led to him, as you say, butting heads with the police. Mm -hmm. And I try to keep that respectful, but you know, at the end of the day, I've got to write a book that, has some conflict about it and, and also keeps Brad in helping to solve the case, even though at the end he may go to the police and say, here's the guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't really involve Brad that much in a lot of daring do, you know, where he's, uh, 
you know, shooting it out with the suspects at the end of it. It's more, more of a cerebral kind of detective trying to figure out who, who committed the crime and why, and, and then passing that information along. More of a puzzle and less, less violence. Absolutely. Absolutely. More whodunit, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Puzzle mystery. And, uh, I noticed, okay, the partner, Sharon Porter, that Brad has. Yes. What, what inspired you to uh, give Brad yes. a female partner? Well, uh, another one of my favorite authors growing up was Earl Stanley Gardner. And, and of course, he created the Perry Mason series. It always appealed to me about Perry Mason was Della Street and, and their relationship, mm -hmm. you know, the Perry Mason. And they kind of worked well together, I thought. And, of course, you also had Paul Drake. So there was kind of a three people that helped in the solution of, of a crime. And so when I had, when I originally had my Steve McBride character, there was the, there was the trio, Brad, Sharon, which which I kind of was trying to emulate what Earl Stanley Gardner had done. But Sharon, it, uh, I guess I would say I've grown up in a family with uh, strong female influences, uh, strong mother. Uh, Becky, my late wife, was, was quite strong. Uh, my mother-in-law, a strong woman, uh, had the model of strong women. Oh, and a, and a and a writers group in Maryland that was all women except for me and uh, and Ron Benray way back, you know. So, so it, for me, it was kind of a natural to incorporate a strong woman as a as a partner in crime for Brad. And I take it it would appeal to readers who are looking for strong women as well as so. puzzle mysteries. Well, I think so. And the other thing we know is that. Um, Women are the primary readers, I think. Um, maybe they're the primary readers anyway, but they're certainly a prime reader of mysteries. And so having a strong female character, I, I hope, would appeal to uh, to the women readers as well. I find it appealing. Yeah, I hope. I hope so. <laughs> um... It's interesting. In my very first book, um, when, when Unforgiving Shadows came out, and even though I had incorporated near the end a potential love interest for Brad, who does periodically continue within the series, that, that Beth uh, is his girlfriend in book one, and eventually they get engaged. But um, I had people that would read the book, and, and they wanted more romance between Brad and Sharon, and that was never my intention. She... I always perceived her as a work colleague. I like that and about her. I, I do like that they're they're colleagues rather than lovers, because um, that does complicate things. Um, it does. You've written two suspense novels. Are they standalones? Yes, they're standalones. The first was uh, called Kisses of an Enemy, and it is basically set in the Washington, D.C. area. The inspiration involves a, a uh, an aide to a congressman that uh, napped and and then demands are made on the chief of staff in the congressional office that he do something in exchange for her safety. 
So that's the premise of the book. Uh, one of the formats that I used in, in creating that book was basically to create different viewpoint characters. The story shifts back and forth between the congressional chief of staff, a female police detective in the D.C. area who's investigating kidnapping ultimately, and a reporter who has been dispatched to Washington to help keep an eye on that congressman and chief of staff. So the book goes back and forth between those three characters. And then when I wrote my second suspense novel, I decided to use the same, that same basic format of three different viewpoint characters. So the second, let me just talk a little bit about the second book. It's more recent. It was inspired by my niece, uh, who is a Lutheran chaplain at a Lutheran college in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And, uh, I was always bugging Anne about, have you read any of my books? And her response to me was, I don't read fiction. And I thought, okay, I'll write a book that features characters, a female Lutheran chaplain. And I'll reach out to her and ask if she won't be my technical advisor on all things Lutheran. And she she agreed to do that. And then in the end, she did read the novel. And I have to say, she enjoyed it. So it's fantastic. But, uh, that, that story, the, 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 the main protagonist in that story is a 26-year-old man who uh, has just gotten out of the military. And he's ended up at this Lutheran college. He is, however, an agnostic for going to the Lutheran college was his girlfriend at the time. And she said, well, let's go. We'll, we'll both go together to this school. So he enrolls and she splits from him. So he's now at the college with, without girlfriend. And uh, there ends up being a relationship that develops between him and agnostic uh, ex-military guy and the, and the chaplain. So hmm. kind of enabled me to do some fun stuff there. That's cool. Along with having mystery elements throughout. So. Of course, of course. Um, what? Tell us about your latest book then in the Brad Frame series. This book is called Yard Goat. And uh, one of the aspects of the Brad Frame character is he has he has a fascination with trains, uh, both big size regular trains, but also model trains. And again, being the wealthy guy that he is, more um, the entire attic set, and it it was given to him initially. He's expanded upon it over the years, but it was initially given to him by his parents, and so. Yard goat is a term, is a train term, and it, it's basically slang for a switching engine in a train yard. So the setting for this particular book, uh, a lot of it is in Baltimore at the train museum there. 
there is a yard goat that features in, in the overall story. But one of the interesting aspects of, of the story for, for me was that I decided to go back and write a story Brad Frame's career so that time-wise it's actually before the events in Unforgiving Shadows and it's before he pairs up with Sharon Porter. So Sharon is not a featured character in that book and also the book takes place in the day in the weeks right after 9/11 at a time when our you know I think perhaps the last time that our country was together perhaps only for three and a half weeks we were together hmm. uh, but you know I wanted to go back and explore that in part because I, I believe anybody you know certainly that was around back then remembers what they were doing how they felt about the country it's an opportunity to kind of explore that along with the the mystery elements that are incorporated in the book. Interesting. That's the latest. Okay. Um, who would you imagine playing Brad Frame if your books were made into a movie <laughs> or TV show? Well, it's interesting. Um, we'd ha I was kind of prepared for that question because we had a little bit of a conversation about it. And I, I was telling you that way back when I first started writing this character back in the 1980, late 80s, I was thinking about uh, the actor Tim Daly, who's the brother of Tyne Daly, but but he's a he's a little too old now actually to to play Brad Frame. So I've been thinking about it, and I think perhaps uh, the actor Ewan McGregor might be a good ah. person to play Brad Frame. Interesting, very and, interesting. And, and I only came up with that anticipating your question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I go to bed every night praying for that Brad Frame TV series or the movie or whatever, you know. <laughs> you never know. Will Lightning Strike? Yeah. <laughs> and I know you're a great screenwriting fan. You know, that's something you enjoy. I've been, yes, I've been into that for a few years now. Yeah. And wouldn't it be amazing to see, you know, I enjoy writing the books. I don't necessarily think that I would be good as a screenwriter. But wouldn't it be amazing to see somebody take a book and turn it into a screenplay? I have done that. Now, what, no. when I write... <laughs> I have done it with my own book. I did it with my yeah. own book. You did? So, I did, yes. Okay. Any any prospects for well, that? You're still peddling? I was uh, actually asked, a producer asked me to do it. Wow. Yes, a local producer here in Maryland. Who, um, That's tremendous. Yeah, it it's all part of what might be the process of bringing a movie out. Um, but you know how that goes. I mean, these things can fall through and so on and so forth. So who do you envision playing your protagonist, if I can, if I can be the questioner for a second? Well, <laughs> when I first wrote the, the series, yeah. I kind of pictured somebody like Jodie... Jodie Foster? Yeah, yeah. Somebody along those lines. Today, right. I might think, you know, Emily Blunt. Sure. But actually, there's another actress who's been picked by by the producer. I won't reveal any names just okay. yet. Okay. Because I'm not All really right. supposed to say I'll too much down. about it just yet. 
right, I'll stay tuned. Yeah, yeah, you never. It, so. I'll I'll be telling people as soon as I hear more about um, what's going on because it's all very exciting and uh, right now it's still a process of finding funding and et cetera, et cetera. And sure. getting, yeah, it's all very well. That's wonderful. Congratulations Thanks. on <laughs> and I'll, I'll keep my I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Yeah, hope hopefully it will come out sooner than Janet Ivanovich's. Uh, one for the money game. <laughs> she kept saying she wanted uh, Sandra Bullock, but by the time the movie got made, she was going to be in a walker, which is probably not true, but yeah. either does it may. <laughs> Completely understand. <laughs> so you yourself are an actor, and you have written and performed in a one-man play about Benjamin Franklin. I have. I find that really been, remarkable. Really been a great... Um, thing for me uh, and, and you know again there's been a long history to that uh, 20 years ago uh, I had seen a couple of one-man shows one woman shows too mm -hmm. uh, there's a one woman show about Emily Dickinson that I got to see I thought it was great I, I got a chance twice to see Hal Holbrook do his Mark Twain tonight and I, I also saw a, a one-man show about Harry Truman mm -hmm. and Played Ben Franklin in the musical 1776 a couple of times, and I thought to myself, you know, Franklin would be as interesting a character for a one-person show as as anybody. And so I just went out and I bought a bunch of books and I sat down and I tried to figure out how how could I tell his story, how could I create the the arc of his life what's important, what from his childhood. Uh, you know, he, he was apprenticed to his older brother as a printer in Boston, and that wasn't going very well. They, uh, he and his brother clashed all the time, and hmm. eventually he ended up leaving Boston and going to Philadelphia. And he was a successful business person at the age of 23. <laughs> you know, the Poor Richard's Almanac and all of that. By the, by the age of 42 able to retire from the active printing business and devoted his life at that point to philosophical studies, some of his scientific studies, the, the electrical experiments that he did, and also to civic causes. So he created, helped to create the library, uh, got the first hospital going in Philadelphia, uh, fire companies, things, you know, and all of that before his fame with American independence mm. and representing America in London for 20 some years. And then, and later after our independence becoming ambassador to France. Mm -hmm. So the man had a remarkable life. I've now of course reached the age where I can credibly portray Ben Franklin and it's been wonderful to do it. Uh, for your listeners in Maryland, I have been talking with the folks at Colonial Players of Annapolis to bringing my play back there uh, around the 4th of July. We're, dates are not set yet, but discussion about it. So Fantastic. Well, congratulations. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, my goodness. Um, well, I think that's, you've accomplished quite a lot. 
That's fantastic. I've tried. You know, it's it's all enjoyable. If you, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing, and I there love you it. Go. Writer Debbie, every day you sit down to write, you know, and you you sit, your fingers are poised above the keyboard, and you're trying to write, and you know, words won't come to you, and you know, and then. And then all of a sudden it crystallizes, you know, and mm -hmm. sometimes you have to go sleep on it and you wake up the next morning and you'll, you'll have solved a plot point issue, you know, and it's just the most amazing thing. It is, isn't it? I, I love the, the more I write and the older I get, the more I'm stimulated by the whole creative process. It just is amazing to me. I know the feeling. So, yeah. Um, well, before we uh, finish up, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, two things. Uh, number one, I've, I'm giving away some books. That's right. People via your podcast. And uh, so all they need to do is to send me an email, and I'm going to give away four copies of Unforgiving Shadows, the, the first book in my series. And each of those will be coupled with one other book. So... It won't necessarily be the same same book, but each person who enters the contest, the, the four winners, will get two books of mine, the first in my series and one other. And how did so, they enter? So that's the one thing I want to mention. Pardon? How did they enter? Uh, all they need to do is to send me an email at ray at rayflint.com, and Flint is spelled with a Y, F-L-Y-N-T. Just put contest on the subject line and uh, uh, do you normally provide a deadline to people when they need to do that uh, line, like yes. 10 days after? I would say in this case because January 9th perhaps? That sounds fine. Okay, yeah, January so After 9th. January 9th I'll look at all the entries and I'll pick four winners and uh, so Okay. That would be great. Then the other thing I want to mention um I'm working on book number eight in the Brad Frame series, and uh, I'm actually about halfway through it now. So I'm looking at maybe uh, April publication. We'll see. But it's called Fatal Gambit. And uh, I wanted to write a theater-related story. Mm. And I've just been trying to figure out something that's – you know, I mean, obviously, a death on stage is is kind of when it comes to a theater-related story. Trying to figure out how I can uh, make it slightly different, and there'll still be a death on stage. But but part of what fascinates me about writing this story is the play within the story, mm -hmm. and so the, the the name of the play is Gambit. And it's about this author who had a successful play a dozen years ago, and then he fell into an addiction issue, and now he's trying to make a comeback. And the play itself deals with uh, internet interactions, you know, social media, hmm. the the disparity between how we deal with people in the anonymous world of the internet versus how we might deal with people face-to-face -face and the false aspects of 
our social interactions, the lies that get told and, yes. you know, that kind of thing. Yes, that's a very so, timely you know, subject. I mean, some of the issues we've seen about, like, bully, online bullying and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and oftentimes doesn't necessarily know who's doing it, but it still affects them. Right. And, and so on. So I, I want the play, play within the story is exploring that those aspects. Sounds like a very timely topic and an interesting it is. story. It's, I think it is. So. Okay. I appreciate the chance to be with you, Debbie. It's great. And uh, think about buying one of my books and give it a chance. My first book is only 99 cents as an e-reader. And, uh, and the others are only two ninety nine. So, Okay, well, that's very reasonable, and people should give it a chance because it's a very good book and a very good series. Thank you very much, Debbie. You're very welcome. And uh, on that note, I will only say uh, please enter the giveaway for, for Ray's books because you get Unforgiving Shadows plus a delightful surprise in addition to that. And uh, you can buy also the Crime Cafe books at my website, debbiemack.com. Just go to Crime Cafe on my website and click on the, the link there. And in the meantime, um, we'll finish up for now. But in the meantime, happy reading, and I will talk to you in two weeks. <laughs>